I think it's important to check your blood pressure and to know your numbers, your lipid profile, your LDL cholesterol, and your triglycerides. It's important to eat heart healthy. And by that, I mean avoidance of high saturated fat diets, avoidance of excessive cholesterol in the diet, and to have a heart-to-heart talk with yourself about your weight. This is True to Your Heart, lessons on living a healthy, hearty life, brought to you by Amarin. Welcome to True to Your Heart, where we discuss new ways of looking at your cardiovascular health with leading health and wellness experts. I'm your host, Ron Jaworski. And today we're going to discuss the findings of a recent survey done by Harris Surveys that focus on cardiovascular disease in America. Then we're going to discuss the solutions that can come from the survey. Joining me first is the Managing Director of Harris Surveys, Rob Yekulek. Rob is an expert on the survey and will be walking us through the results and why the survey was explored in the first place. I am now joined by Rob Yekulek from uh, the Harris Surveys, a managing director who's going to give us some very, very good insight. And Rob, great to have you here on True to Your Heart podcast. Uh, looking forward to uh, spending some time with you. And it's been kind of an intriguing time during the pandemic. And, you know, we all know that heart disease is the most common cause of death in the United States. Yet there have been rising concerns that the COVID pandemic you know, may negatively impact people getting treatment. And that's a major, major concern when people aren't getting treatment. And I know with your survey, can you explain why? Yes. Uh, so great to be here. Pleasure to be talking with you, Jaws, I have to say. Thank you. So it's very cool. Yeah, it's a really important topic, right? So as, as we're looking at the impacts of COVID, I think we're still at the very beginnings of really to beginning to understand what the, you know, what the impact is of a kind of, you know, delaying or missing going to, to see the doctor or specialists. Also just, I mean, one of the things I could say on a, on a more kind of like personal people around me know, like of just, you know, being not really moving around nearly as much. Right. I mean, there's, there's a number of people that I know colleagues who, who have certainly had a bunch of kind of health impacts, which are just from kind of sitting around. Right. So when you, when you look at the survey itself, one of the things that's actually good to see is you haven't had big drop-offs in terms of refilling prescriptions, and it gives you a good sense that people are staying true to, to a lot of the, the the core medications. Which again, as we know, for for people who are dealing with you know real chronic illnesses, is is, is huge. That said, you're seeing really big drop-offs in both from you know in the survey we we talk to you know the broad public, we talk to patients who uh, who are basically who are taking uh, cardiovascular drugs who are facing cardiovascular issues as well as diabetes patients as well as physicians as well as specialists as well as pharmacists right so a really comprehensive perspective and one of the things you can see across the board is there's been a pretty big drop off in terms of people going in to see doctors right and there's you know there there's only you know telehealth has been a big big uptick as, as we know which has been a great kind of gap fill but there there's a lot of things that you can't really do uh, via telehealth that you can do in terms of an in-person setting, especially when we're, when we're looking at kind of indicators of, of chronic issues, how things are proceeding. So we think this is a really important study to, to really be able to kind of look at how that's having an impact. And, you know, I mean, we're seeing a variety of kind of implications to that, you know, based on the data. I'll give you an example of me personally, a real life example. In, uh, 
April of 2020, I was scheduled for a colonoscopy. Um, obviously, the pandemic hit. I waited a year before I finally got yeah. it. Thank goodness everything came out fine. But would I be an example of people, you know, from cardiovascular disease to colonoscopy to, to, to any other type of, I mean, we're talking about serious, serious health concern right now. And you said it a moment ago. I mean, there's there's a very high percentage of people not getting the proper treatment. Is that what your survey found, that there are that many people not getting in or are they just delaying? Most people are delaying. Right. So, you know, as, as we look at it, you know, the frequency of check ins has, you know, dropped quite a bit. Right. You know, if, if we're looking at a third of the, the broad public, uh, about a third of diabetes patients, uh, about, about a third of uh, heart disease patients, you know, they've avoided seeing healthcare professionals. And it's primarily due to fears around COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we, we've seen some bits of it kind of softening as vaccines come into play. But I mean, you're, you're talking about really big chunks of the of, of, of the population. Yep. Right. So I think there's, you know, there's big implications and we're just starting to, it's the beginnings of it right now. Right. I mean, I think there's, you know, as you're, as you're starting to see the, 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 the ramifications of people being at home for most of a year and now kind of the Delta variant coming back, I think there's, there's a, there's a lot to be discussing, concerned about, but also kind of thinking through, you know, what are the new kinds of things that, you know, physicians, pharmacists, patients need to be thinking about, talking about in, in order to, to fill some gaps and, you know, get your head around what's going on. You know, Rob, can you maybe, maybe explain to our listening audience kind of the, the four key principal objectives of the survey? Yeah. So uh, as we're looking at the survey, there are four kind of core components of, of, of where we focus our attention, right? First and foremost, it was, it was assessing the impact of the pandemic on non-COVID-related kind of health issues, if you will, mm-hmm. right? You know, COVID itself is, is a huge impact point. What we're talking about here is much more focused on chronic cardiovascular and comorbidities like diabetes that, that have, you know, have had big impacts. It's assessing the perceptions of, you know, overall health and risk level related to, to heart disease among the, the public heart disease patients as well as diabetes patients. Really getting into understanding the prominence and knowledge of various prescription and non-prescription products, right? So there's in, in around heart disease, it's, it's actually really interesting when you start looking at the data in terms of, you know, how confident some people are around, you know, addressing it versus not. But there's all sorts of different levels of knowledge and misconception and, and actually really surprising. Um, even HCPs, there's, there's a variety of places where, you know, the FDA has kind of you know, pulled back. <laughs> and, you know, in many cases, you know, even specialists aren't aware of it. Also looking at, you know, knowledge of heart disease and related topics among the general public patients and, and healthcare professionals as, as kind of like to, 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 you know, tie a bow on the perspectives here. How were the groups weighted and eventually divided into different target groups and really so you can conduct a study? Was that difficult or easy? I, I actually, I mean, we, you know, we did this in, in partnership with Amarin and we give them kudos for, for really kind of bringing a very holistic lens to it. Um, very often you see just kind of a, a single perspective on what's going on. It might be just a single patient population or the broad public. What we've been able to do, and this is, again, you know, we as the Harris Poll do a, a ton of work in healthcare. So all these audiences are kind of core to, to our work. I think with Amarin, we've really been able to bring together a very unique perspective that connects the dots, right? So we have that broad public representation. We can really understand what's happening in, from a big picture. We're able to dig in specifically into the perspectives of diabetes patients, of heart disease patients, and then also bring in the healthcare provider perspective 
which is so critical, right? As we're thinking of kind of addressing a lot of the problems, problems in, you know, knowledge continuum, being able to, to also talk to and understand perspectives from cardiologists, primary care physicians, and, and pharmacists really provides an extraordinarily unique perspective on everything happening right now. And, you know, how do we start thinking about addressing some of these things? Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned even at the, at the top of this discussion about the relationship between a patient and the pharmacist, not only the, 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 the care provider. Do you see that direction moving forward being predominant as we, as we look to the future? The pharmacist's role will be expanded? So again, I mean, this is, it's a really interesting scenario. People are, people are refilling prescriptions, but they're not going to see their primary care physician. Like just it's in, you know, there's a behavioral feature around COVID that people have been seeing pharmacists more so versus other HCPs in a very unique way. And so pharmacists play just a really unique role, right? I mean, there's a lot of physicians and specialists would even acknowledge, you know, when they're going through med school, they're not thinking about how all these different molecules work, right? They certainly have an understanding of drugs and pharma, but that's not their core focus, right? And especially when you when you talk to nurses, they really lean in on pharmacists, right? So it's, it's a kind of a big picture way to say, you know, pharmacists are really important. They have very unique and specific expertise, and they have a lot of very direct patient interaction and access, right? They, they do play a critical role. And I think you, again, there's been a lot of conversation around pharmacists for the last five, 10 years and kind of the role they play in the system. And it's only getting bigger and it's going it has to continue to, right? If you're, if you're talking about a system that is patient centric and these are people who are professionals with truly unique education and knowledge and expertise and they're seeing people on the regular, right? They're, they're a core component. Absolutely. Like anything else, I think you develop a relationship with your doctor yep. and of course with your pharmacist. And I've always kind of felt that relationship with my pharmacist is different. It's, you know, you usually go in the drugstore, it's more casual. You know, when you see your doctor, it's an antiseptic setting and, you know, the blood pressure goes up and, you know, that white coat syndrome, I think is what uh, the professionals call it. Yet you go and see your pharmacist, there's kind of a casual conversation. Could that be one of the reasons why people feel more comfortable with a familiar face and a familiar setting? I mean, it, you certainly are lowering the stakes, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of very often, not all, not in all cases, but very often, especially if you're dealing with, uh, you know, diabetes or heart disease, you're, if you're going into the doctor, you have all sorts of a kind of anxieties and trepidations. When you're going in to, to, to see your pharmacist, in many cases, you're going, you know, you already kind of know what's going to be happening. And you, in many cases, it, you, are, you already know these people pretty well, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're going in pretty regularly. You understand what's going on, but very often you still have questions, right? You, you can get into like a good dialogue and these, these really are smart people, right? I mean, they have like, they have very specific kind of knowledge and expertise. And, you know, I, I enjoy going to talk to they They answer all sorts of questions, right? And you're kind of like, well, what about this? What about that? They're, you know, they're, they're great. They're very knowledgeable. And as you said, they, they do take the temperature down a little bit. Like your, your heartbeat, your heart's not beating quite as fast as you, <laughs> as you see your pharmacist versus going in to see your PCP or, you know, a, specialists around diabetes or, or heart disease, you know, endocrinologists. Rob, let me ask you a little bit about omega-3. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been taking omega-3 personally for quite a while, yet I know there there, there are some concerns about it. And, and yeah. what is the challenge with the education gap regarding omega-3? Uh, omega-3s are interesting, right? So there's, I think you have like a really, and the survey reinforces this, right? You, you generally have a strong sense across all these audiences around safety of omega threes, right? The the question marks become a little bit more pointed 
as you start looking at things like FDA approvals right. or as you start looking at, you know, proven efficacy and things like that. Right. So across the board, you're, you're, you're seeing, you know, you know, physicians, specialists, patients are saying, you know, feel very, you know, that they're safe. But you, you actually see really high percentages that say they're very effective, right? Which, which is interesting, right? Cause there's no, it hasn't necessarily been proven out. And in, you're seeing some big majorities that they even believe they've been uh, approved by the FDA. Right. Yep. So that's, it's kind of like, it's two different things. Like you're, you're moving in a different, once we start talking about efficacy, once we start talking about FDA approval, like it's, it's a different bar we're talking about. And it's one thing if you're, if you're talking to a PCP or a specialist and they're saying, yeah, these are safe to use, right? No, no, no harm, no foul. It's another thing if they're saying, no, we strongly suggest you use these. They're highly effective for, for dealing with what in some cases are some, some pretty big health impact points, right? So Rob, are, are you saying that it hasn't been proved either way that it, oh, it's, it's helpful or it's negative, that the, the FDA hasn't recognized it? As- I mean, there's, they're just not FDA approved, right. right? And in order to get to an FDA approval, you have to go through very, very specific kind of trials and testing. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm, I'm not going to speak about the efficacy because there, there really isn't any sort of core data on it. But I mean, what we can say is we know that they're not FDA approved, mm-hmm. right? That would be, that'd be the starting point. And that many people don't even know that, right? Which is interesting, right? Right. And again, I think that's the, that's a, maybe a whole different kind of can of worms, or like, what does FDA approval mean and things like that? But basically, they just they haven't gone through the same rigor as prescription drugs, right? If if you have a prescription drug, it gets approved by the FDA for very specific use cases, right? It's almost a challenge we're dealing with now, Rob, is with you know the, the COVID vaccines. Um, you know, they're not yep. FDA approved yet, uh, but they're, they're beneficial. I guess that's been kind of proven. Uh, well. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's a great, it's a great point, right? I mean, this is, and I think people get a lot of misconceptions about this because they're not approved, but they're approved for emergency use, right? Right. Even to get emergency use approval, you've had to go through a number of these clinical trials, mm-hmm. right? You've had to actually have, you, you need to show, a, you, you basically have to show big data sets mm-hmm. that indicate efficacy, right? That's why like, you know, you don't just have some random person kind of spinning up mRNA, right? Or, mm-hmm. and like being like, Hey, this is great. You know, yeah, you, you, it's, it, there's a lot of rigor in the process. And mm-hmm. even that mRNA process, like that's crazy. Like the fact that people are able to go from soup to nuts in a, in a year versus 10 years, nuts, mm-hmm. right? But they actually had to take it through a real process to ensure that it's, it's getting there, right? Like it's, you know, this is why you shouldn't be taking a vaccine that was like made in Russia, right? Like it's gone <laughs> <Right>. through. <laughs> no rigor, right? Like really bad idea. It's kind of like a wait and see, not good, right? In the US, it's actually gone through very rigorous processes in in order to be approved. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of the difference, right? One is like, hey, is this something that I should be considering to take? Is it is it good? Is it bad? You know, well, there's no harm, no foul, right? It's great. Like it's, you know, some people feel better about it. But that's very different than FDA approval, right? Right. Right. Rob, how long did it take you to conduct the survey to to come up with these survey answers in, in regards to how the pandemic has affected cardiovascular disease and people visiting their doctors. How in-depth was the study? Uh, I mean, it's it's a pretty in-depth study, right? So most of the interviews um, that we did were, were around 10 minutes in length, which really enables you to cover uh, a lot of territory, right? So again, we're, we're able to go through and get people's kind of big picture perceptions, but really importantly, kind of drive through to a lot of these really specific kind of insights around knowledge gaps and knowledge understanding, right? So the, the, the FDA piece that you're talking about is, is, a, is, is a really key one, right? And kind of misconceptions around, you know, what has been approved, what hasn't been approved, and in some cases, what's actually been removed or withdrawn from approval. 
Well, I really appreciate uh, your insight and enlightening uh, myself and our listening audience uh, to your survey. And Rob Yekolek, the Managing Director of Harris Surveys, I want to thank you for joining us. A pleasure. It's great chatting. Thank you very much, Jazz. I really appreciate it. All right. Good luck. Cheers. Thank you. Now with me is Dr. Dean Bramlett, the Medical Director of the Cardiovascular Diagnostic Center of the Heart and Lipid Institute of Florida in St. Petersburg, Florida. He is also an Assistant Consulting Professor of Medicine in Cardiology at Duke University. He studies disorders of lipid and lipoprotein metabolism, molecular studies of low HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, and postprandial response to dietary fat. He's joining us to talk about what the survey results mean from a medical standpoint and what we can take away from them. Dr. Bramlett, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you. We share something in common. We both love golf, so that that's always a very positive way to start out a conversation. But as we all know, to play the game of golf, you got to be healthy. So your insight is going to be very, very important to our listening audience and to me as well. And, and, and Dr. Brennan, we know that the last uh, 20 months have been very, very difficult on people. And people have kind of left their doctors. They've, they've left visitations to their doctors and getting things done to take care of their body. What can doctors do to re-engage with their patients? Well, Ron, first of all, thank you for uh, participating in this with me, and it's a pleasure to chat with you today. And uh, it is true that uh, many patients have sort of become disengaged during this pandemic. It's unfortunate. It can have substantial consequences to their health. And I think there are things that have been done and can be done to improve the engagement with patients. One of those things that was uh, well thought out and implemented during this 20-month period of time was the initiation of virtual office visits. Mm -hmm. And this was something that was not covered under reimbursement previously, including telephone calls. And those that did reach out but didn't want to come into the office did have an opportunity for some participation, but it wasn't really enough. There were some people that never contacted the office that never came in during the entire 20-month period of time. And one of the things I think that providers can think about doing is looking at the electronic healthcare records and seeing if there are ways to screen that to identify people that have been absent from visits to the office over the past six months and maybe just reach out to them by the phone and let them know that it's safe to come into the doctor's visits. I think people worry a lot about the wait times in the emergency room and exposure to the COVID virus that might occur in that period of time. And there are ways that Offices can notify patients if there's delays or if they're going to have to wait a long time in the waiting room and uh, allay some of their fears about coming in and getting the follow-up visits. Now, Dr. Bram, you mentioned those delays, and people obviously aren't getting at least the guidance they deserve. So what is the impact of the delays on the patients? Well, delays in coming in for routine office visits has substantial possibilities for affecting the health because as we know, much of cardiovascular disease is silent until cardiovascular events happen, such as heart attacks or stroke. And so if patients do not come in and get follow-up evaluation of blood pressures and lipid levels and medications, or fail to come in to report symptoms that might otherwise have an opportunity to be evaluated, the possibility of them 
missing a chance to prevent disease from progressing and missing an opportunity to reduce the cardiovascular events by addressing the prevention, importantly, is something that we all have to worry about and will likely be associated with concern for greater cardiovascular events. And especially knowing that COVID-19 has been associated with a greater increased risk of thrombotic or clotting events that can lead to stroke and heart attack. Mm, very interesting. Now, how can you improve and, and make it easier to make better the dialogue between the patient, between the doctor? What is happening in that regard? Well, I think that's an important area because a lot of times there's a tendency, if you're running behind, for the office visits to be rushed and an opportunity to engage the patient in an effective dialogue about things that can be done to reduce their cardiovascular risk. Now, as a good example, you know, are the patients smoking because they're under stress? Right. Have the patients been even having their lipid levels checked? Are they doing things such as exercise, which can have a big impact, especially on triglyceride levels? Do, have they gained weight because they've been sedentary? And if so, has this had a negative impact on their lipid profile? And if they're not even getting it checked, then you don't have an opportunity to address them. But without having to confront them about procedures or uh, need for surgeries, et cetera, you can begin this conversation with the lifestyle discussions that's really so important and the foundation for their good cardiovascular health. You know, I, I've, I've spoken to so many people about weight gain during the COVID period. And quite honestly, I got to be true to you here. Uh, I gained about 10 pounds myself over the last 20 months. So what do you tell people the minute you hear that? Well, it's a matter of calories in and calories out. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever you have 3,500 calories in excess of expenditure based on your metabolic rate and your activity, you're going to gain one pound. And there's been a lot of sedentary activity and uh, time in front of the computer, time in front of the television, and really just getting out and simply walking, even if you can't get involved in a, a more vigorous exercise program because of the concern about going to gymnasiums where there, there may be some increased risk of exposure to other people. Right. The risk of being out walking on the sidewalk is, is very, very small. And that's really something that can burn a lot of calories. And there's ample time during the pandemic to do that. Uh, Dr. Brown, run us through kind of a, a quick guide uh, to healthy heart habits. Sure. So you want to get about 30 minutes of exercise a day. And it doesn't have to be intense exercise. It can be something as simply as walking at a brisk pace, or at a comfortable pace for your activity. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to check your blood pressure and to know your numbers, your lipid profile, your LDL cholesterol, and your triglycerides. It's important to eat heart healthy. And by that, I mean avoidance of high saturated fat diets, avoidance of excessive cholesterol in the diet, trying to limit unnecessary salt or sodium exposure in the diet, and to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with yourself about your weight. If, if you're overweight or obese, that can have impact, particularly on your lipid profile, especially your triglycerides, and weight reduction is an important part of that. And many of the folks, as you know, that are overweight have issues with their blood sugar and the metabolic syndrome, and so diabetes is a component of this. And you can actually reverse diabetes with exercise and weight loss more than any medication that's out there. So embracing these concepts and avoidance of smoke and avoidance of excess alcohol, not that you can't have some, but excess alcohol, these factors can go a long way to 
improving the cardiovascular health, reducing the weight, and impacting the diabetes and the effect that it has on, on the lipid profile, mm-hmm. specifically triglycerides, especially. You, know, you, you mentioned getting tested. Well, what's, what's the quickest way and the advice you would give someone to get these tests accomplished? Well, the blood pressure can be done on a regular basis at home with a sphygmomanometer or blood pressure cuff that can be obtained at, at any local pharmacy. And I encourage people to check the blood pressure themselves, not to do it after exercise or after a heavy meal where it's going to be artificially elevated, to do it in the resting state at a comfortable time, perhaps in the morning when they get up or late afternoon or in the evening before bedtime. And uh, that's one of the numbers you can check yourself along with your weight. But the numbers that should be checked from a lipid standpoint are the things such as the LDL cholesterol and especially the triglycerides as well. Can you kind of educate us on what omega-3s and phenofibrates are and what are their benefits, which I think is probably the most important? Well, certainly. You know, we spend a lot of time focusing on LDL cholesterol, and it's true that it's extremely important. In fact, our national guidelines are, if you look at what they're called, they're called you know, the the guidelines addressing blood cholesterol as opposed to blood lipids. And the lipids are a risk factor for heart disease, not only from a cholesterol standpoint, but also from the elevation of the triglycerides, which can be addressed by those non-pharmacologic things that that I mentioned earlier. But when it comes to medications, historically, we've used drugs such as fibrates to try to lower triglycerides in patients. But then we did studies like the FEEL trial and the ACCORD trial in diabetic patients and could not demonstrate any reduction of cardiovascular events with or without statin therapy as a baseline. Omega-3 fatty acids are important, and of course, they occur in in nature. Uh, The omega-3s are generally most derived from fish products, icosopentanoic acid, or EPA, and docosohexanoic acid, or DHA. Both of those are known to lower triglycerides, Mm. but only icosopentanoic acid has been demonstrated in two trials to have beneficial effects on reduction of triglycerides and an impact on cardiovascular events. And most importantly, the largest of those trials was the REDUCE-IT study in which people with heart disease or diabetes and additional risk factors were prescribed icosopentethyl which is the EPA, pure EPA, at four grams per day, taken with meals, two grams twice a day. And it had such an impact on cardiovascular events in people with good LDL cholesterols of 75 that if their triglycerides were a bit elevated, it reduced their cardiovascular events for a heart attack by 31%. Wow. It reduced their stroke risk by 20%, and it reduced their chance of dying from cardiovascular mortality by 20%. And other analysis on a non-quantitative basis demonstrated that there were reductions of all cardiovascular events, not just the first one. So it's important that that omega-3 be a high-dose pure EPA and uh, not a blend of EPA and DHA. So I take omega-3s daily. So I guess I'm doing the right thing. Well, maybe and maybe not. Uh, there are If you take simply one gram of a blended EPA DHA product per day. There have been studies such as the risk and prevention trial, the origin trial, the omega trial, ascend, and the vital study that have all demonstrated that one gram a day of a blended EPA DHA product did not have an impact on reducing cardiovascular events. It seems that it takes a high level of EPA 
which can be measured in the blood and was so in these trials to impact cardiovascular events. So while there are maybe other useful reasons to take EPA and DHA, it takes a therapeutic dose of EPA in people with heart disease or diabetes and other risk factors to really reach the level of EPA in the blood to have the impact to reduce mm. cardiovascular events. So it's not the case that just a little bit of the blend is necessarily always good for you. Well, thanks for educating me personally on that. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. You're welcome. You, you mentioned exercise and, you know, hey, I, I played in you know pro football for 17 years. I played through high school and college. So I've always been very active. I still am active. I, I try to walk the golf course as much as I can. I try to exercise as much as I can. But earlier in the show, you mentioned exercise about a half hour. It, that, that seems a very short period of time for me on a daily basis. Is, is that the minimum? And, and should people try to increase as time goes on and they get in, in better condition? Well, yes, it is the minimum. 30 minutes should be the least amount of exercise you get on a daily basis or at least five days per week. And when you can extend that on to 60 or 90 minutes, it, there may be, first of all, more caloric consumption and secondly, some benefit. But a study just out this, just this week talks about the importance of reduction of stroke and the relationship in patients with a, a sedentary behavior. And just getting off the couch, getting out and walking has a lot of impact. But when you can do other activities, aerobic activities, uh, or a cal more caloric burning activities, then that's good. I caution people that are not used to it about lifting too much weight because right. sometimes that can spike blood pressures up and really high swings in systolic blood pressure can have an impact to, to perhaps make plaques unstable. So you should always ease into activities and, and start them out gingerly and work your way up and avoid uh, some of the particularly musculoskeletal problems that can occur if you take too, rust, too robust of, uh, uh, of an effort in the, in the beginning of those activities. Well, Dr. Bramlett, thank you so much for joining us on the True to Your Heart podcast. You certainly enlightened me and our listening audience. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. Have a great day. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. I would like to thank both Dr. Bramlett and Rob Yakulek for being on the show today. For more information on how you can be true to your heart, visit www.trueToYourHeart.com. I'm Ron Jaworski. And this has been True to Your Heart, presented by Amarin.